0: What is up, everybody, and welcome back to the Not Your Typical Church podcast, a place for doubters, heretics, and dissenters to have realistic conversations about religion, culture, and the future of this thing called church. Tonight is a special night. Uh, Tonight, my Church Beaver Memorial is hosting a Lights for Liberty event, standing in solidarity with all of those immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers that have uh, been subject to mistreatment at the border. Uh, Tonight we have several speakers lined up from local politicians to local religious leaders and folks in between. We have protest music lined up. We're going to do a candlelight vigil down on the main street here in Lewisburg. And uh, a couple of our speakers were kind enough to come in and uh, do an interview with me beforehand, Kate and Sherry Jacobson. Sherry is an anthropologist who teaches at Susquehanna University, and her daughter Kate is uh, currently a sophomore in high school, and they've come to speak about their firsthand experience aiding refugees and asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. Kate and Sherry, thanks for being here tonight.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks. thanks. Nice to talk to
0: you. So let's just jump into uh, to some of the work you guys are doing. Why don't you explain um, before really diving into the specifics? Um, some of the background of how the people you were helping really got to where they were and to the place where you guys were working at.
2: So we were in McAllen, Texas, which is, uh, Southern Texas on the border. Um, most people we interacted with came from Guatemala and Honduras. Mm -hmm. Uh, we met a couple people from El El Salvador. Um, and they had all walked or taken the bus um which was not pleasant mm-hmm. in itself um and they had come to the border and they had followed procedure for seeking asylum and they had told ice workers that they're asylum seekers and then they were um put in detention centers mm-hmm. and interviewed and it was established that they had a credible fear of return mm-hmm. And then from that point on, they had to identify a sponsor in the United States, Mm -hmm. which was most often an immediate family member, mother, father, cousin, brother, Mm -hmm. uh, something like that. And then they were given a court date in that town where their sponsor was. Mm -hmm. So from that point, ICE would take a bus of asylum seekers to the charity we were at, Um, And before the charity was there, ICE would just take the bus and they would just drop them off at the bus station. Mm. And then everyone was left to find their bus and their ticket all without any help. They were by themselves. Most of them speak very, very little English. Um, So ICE would drop them off at the center. Uh, We would help them get their train ticket, their bus ticket um we would give them clothes we'd give them a hot meal and then after a couple days we would help them get to the bus station and they would be off to where they were going
0: Mm -hmm. and just a a logistical question so they have to identify a sponsor now what if they don't have I mean I assume you ran up against this when you were down there If somebody doesn't have somebody that they know or a family member in the States. What do they what happens then?
1: They they wouldn't have gotten as far as the center where we were volunteering okay. if they didn't have a sponsor. Okay. So everybody who got to that center had a set of papers with them. Mm-hmm. So they were documented. Sure. Uh they had a set of papers and they had an identified sponsor. Okay. And people know this. You mm-hmm. know, it's you don't undertake that sort of journey you sure. know, without some general understanding of how the process is going to work. Mm-hmm. People bring evidence with them from home sure. to um, bolster their cases mm-hmm. about credible fear of return. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So you guys were working exclusively with asylum seekers. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And now what, so well, first of all, when did you guys go down to the border?
1: We were there from December 23rd to January 2nd.
0: Okay. Uh, Just just uh, 2018 to 2020. Yeah, we were there
1: Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's, and and, and then we left. Yeah.
0: And so, how, so tell me about that uh, decision for you guys. How did you decide to get down there? How did you get connected with the center that you worked with?
1: So, I, um, it was just really weighing heavily on my heart. Mm -hmm. Actually, ever since the Syrian crisis started, Mm -hmm. I was appalled Mm -hmm. and um, really troubled by what it would mean to be a person living around such political violence and not have any options for leaving. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a parent, you know, thinking about what would it mean if I couldn't take care of my child? I couldn't keep my child safe. And we actually have a guest room in our house. We're Fortunate enough to have a lot of grandparents. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why can't we use this guest room and take a Syrian family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I, you know, I learned it's not that simple. You can't just be a sponsor like that. But it's been years in the making for me, and then with the the more recent crisis at the border, with the family separations, mm-hmm. for me it was a breaking point, and I just couldn't sit at home anymore. Mm-hmm. And I thought about a few possibilities. Uh, the most feasible one seemed to be volunteering, mm-hmm. doing some direct service mm-hmm. at this humanitarian respite center, mm-hmm. run by Sister Norma Pimentel and McAllen.
0: Okay. What about you, Kate?
2: Um. So for me. It was never really something I was super passionate about before we went. Um, it was on my radar. Of course, I thought it was awful, but it wasn't, it wasn't something I was bugging mom and dad to do. Mm. Um, and then we were at dinner, and I guess mom had been kind of processing all of this. And then she just said, maybe we could go to the border. And mm. I said, oh, that sounds nice. I think that would be a really meaningful way to spend our winter break. Um, and then we got there and we were staying in this very small room in it, it was not a hotel it was just kind of a building um, where generally sisters or priests would stay when they were visiting McAllen and we walked in and it's it was literally two beds in a bathroom I mean there was nothing else and I thought oh no like this is how (laughs) I'm spending my winter break like (laughs) this is this is my winter break yeah um but as soon as we got to the center I don't know I think I don't know if something just clicked but it just awakened me I -hmm. think and now I feel very passionately about it and I think that's really meaningful and I think that it shows that you don't have to have this deep rooted passion for Mm -hmm. helping this in this particular crisis your entire life I think I think everyone can help and maybe you'll develop a passion for it on the way Mm -hmm. but um yeah I'm just I'm so grateful for the opportunity Mm -hmm. um and now I, I really have a passion for it I'm really, really passionate about it.
0: Yeah. And how did you guys find the particular center that you went to? Was it just through research or did somebody make a recommendation for you?
2: It was not easy to
1: find a place to go volunteer, I have to say. And um, I think there's even more attention to this now. Uh, But at the time, uh, you heard about the crisis at the border, but I wasn't hearing a lot about places to go. But I reached out to academic friend of an academic friend who was at mm-hmm. University of Texas at Austin. And she said, I've heard about this place in McCallum And I reached out to them. They're so busy. You know, mm-hmm. they're so busy. I, all these unanswered emails. Yeah. And finally I got some phone number to somebody who was like in an office in the diocese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know, but basically we went that down there a little bit on a wing and a prayer because mm-hmm. we really didn't have a firm a connection with yes you're coming on the 23rd we'll meet you at 10 a.m at the center and you mm. know but we we did it and you know the person I had spoken to I said if we just show up will they find something for us to do because I know volunteers can get in the way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I really didn't want to be a burden sure. and she said we could definitely use you mm. so we showed up people were surprised to see us uh but it all worked out and we were able to ourselves to work immediately mm-hmm. and pretty much, you know, we were there from eight in the morning till uh, sometimes nine at night, you mm-hmm. know, there was just never any end to what needed to be done. It mm. could have been there 24 seven.
0: Yeah. And can you get, so speaking, Speak into that a little bit, what, um, kind of the day in day out, I mean, were you guys really handling some just minutiae type stuff? Were you, um, directly working with? The asylum seekers, what what, what was kind of your routine? What kind of work were you guys doing?
2: Um, So, like I said earlier, the center found people their bus tickets. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had absolutely nothing to do with that. They hired people. Sure. Um, So that was, they would come in, um, they would get some food maybe, but they would get their bus ticket. And then after that, they would get clothes. So there was, like mom said, never-ending sorting of donations. People donated these huge trash bags with Mm -hmm. all these clothes. So there was the sorting of that, which was into men's, women, and children. And then those would get sent to those rooms. And then you would sort them into size and girls and boys. Um, So most of the time, I was in the children's room. They had all these bins of clothing and... People, the asylum seekers would line up sometimes for two hours Mm. and just wait to walk in and get a shirt and some pants for Mm -hmm. their little kid. Um, We helped in the kitchen a little, um, but the kitchen was actually mostly run by the asylum seekers. Mm. Uh, The days we were there, a mother and son from El Salvador, they kind of ran it. Mm -hmm. um, And people just wanted to help uh which i i think is really meaningful. So we were in there a little bit. Um we did some laundry and then another really important thing we did was we made a lot of sandwiches and snack bags. People depending on whether they were going to some were going to San Antonio, some were going to Pennsylvania, North Dakota, Los Angeles, I mean all over the country. So depending on how long their bus rides were, we would give them X amount of sandwiches and X amount of, you know, cookies or chips. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put those together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just at one point I tried to fix the Wi-Fi. just kind of <laughs> little odd jobs that needed mm-hmm. to be done.
0: Yeah. Stuff that nobody really thinks about, mm-hmm. right? No, Nobody considers that there are all these donations for asylum seekers, refugees that all has to be sorted and organized.
1: Yeah. And it, it, it just felt like it was just a nonstop mm. flow of needs. So somebody I you know was you know, could be in the men's room trying to help men get some pants and a shirt to wear. Mm-hmm. And one of them has actually brought his son in and his son needs to get clothes from the children's room mm-hmm. and you take them outside to bring them to where the children's room is. And somebody grabs you and says, "I need some medicine for my child." Mm -hmm. And there's a child there with a fever. You can feel the heat, Mm -hmm. you know, coming off her body. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, "Oh, I gotta, you know, bring this person to the dispensary." And then you're on the way to the dispensary, and it's just constant, you know, need. And people, I think Katie and I have spoken so many times about how remarkably. Patient Mm -hmm. and kind and civil, all of these asylum seekers were. Mm -hmm. People would wait in line for hours without ever complaining. Mm -hmm. Kids would get fussy. Parents were so remarkably patient and kind with them. Mm -hmm. I never saw a parent yell at a child. Mm -hmm. These people are under enormous amounts of stress. Mm -hmm. They're hungry. They're tired. They don't have adequate clothing. They're cold at night. And nobody ever raised a voice Mm. or jostled anybody or said get behind me or Mm -hmm. they were so civil to each other and
2: um so kind to their children Mm. yeah i mean to the point where we would be passing out breakfasts and there would be adults giving kids some of their food um kids they didn't even know there would be kids sharing um yeah just it was remarkable
0: and this is not really the portrait that's painted of these people from the top, right? I mean, so um, obviously we know this this rhetoric coming out of the White House and, and coming out of uh, the administration um, that really paints asylum seekers, refugees, migrants at the border in a very negative, violent light. Um and uh, and so clearly your experience is complete opposite of that.
1: Complete opposite.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, even one day when I was making sandwiches, and you can always make sandwiches, <laughs> it was a long, long table, and you yeah. would just open up like ten packages of bread and lay all the bread out on the table and then you know 10 packages of ham and ham sure. ham 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 ham, and then cheese 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 and then mm-hmm. another piece of bread on top it was kind of a assembly line where you would move down the mm-hmm. table and these two teenage boys from Guatemala came in to help out uh, 15 years old or something one mm-hmm. was on his way to San Francisco and I don't remember where the other one was going somewhere not as attractive <laughs> um, and you know how we often feel about teenage boys in the United States mm-hmm. and, um, which is unfortunate. These young men were so helpful and so kind and so communicative. And, um, it was really just a delight to be with them. They had met in the center. They did not know themselves to know each other beforehand and they had become friends there mm-hmm. and they were looking for a way to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just, yes, we had one experience after another of kind people, generous people, helpful people, mm-hmm. uh, people who were, as I said, enormously patient.
0: Mm-hmm. And if you guys, <clears throat> excuse me, if you wouldn't mind speaking into this a little bit um, from a, from a faith perspective, so you guys are you're both Jewish. Um, And obviously Judaism has a a very central tenet of um, welcoming the migrant, the foreigner, counting them as one of you. Um, So in making the decision to go down there and and do this type of work and even the the leading up to it, kind of to that breaking point, um, how did your your faith background and your faith tradition inform that?
2: I mean, I think... One thing that really spoke to me, just how you said Jews are, I mean, one tenant of our religion is welcoming to the migrant. And I think that's because we are. I mean, for all of history, Jews have been expelled from country after country mm-hmm. and constantly shifting. Um, and I think that, you know, I can I can see in our history that there were people that welcomed us and there are people that accepted us and helped us. And I think that's contributed to the fact that, I mean, we can be Jewish today out like proudly and we don't have to worry about it. So I think having the capability to do that for someone else Mm -hmm. was meaningful to me. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely the ethos of my house growing up Mm -hmm. to the point where it almost becomes a kind of embodied disposition <laughs> where mm-hmm. it's just part of how you understand your relationship to the world without even stopping to think, oh, I better go look up some, you know, um, passage in the Torah to, you know, it's just, it is, I think, part of who you are. Yeah. Uh, my husband's uh, grandparents had to leave Germany in 1929. Mm. Wow. They could no longer, you know, run their business and they left for Palestine and then they, made their way to the US, but within that family, some of them went to South Africa, some of them went to Venezuela, Switzerland, they went all over. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just in the long, deep memory of ourselves as Jewish people, but it's, it's also the story of our family, as mm-hmm. it is for many Jewish families.
0: Mm-hmm. And coming from a, a Jewish tradition and a Jewish perspective, um, there's been more and more um, scholars and Jewish communities coming out that are, that's comparing what's happening at the border to what was happening at the beginning um, and went well into uh, the rise of, of Nazism um, during World War II. Um, uh, do, do you guys, do you, do you have thoughts on that? Do you agree with that? Do you think it's, um, do you think it's accurate? Do you, th- where, where are you guys at with that?
1: I, See that, I, I saw your question ahead of time, and I've been thinking about this a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I believe that question operates on at least two levels. Mm-hmm. One is the question of international law. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know that just following orders is not acceptable right. anymore. Right, right. And my understanding is that there is a category of, you know, called mass atrocities that is, that is, uh, a term of art mm-hmm. among uh, human rights attorneys and and human rights law um, that have to that are, uh, the, the con- are are constituted by a deliberate systematic attack on civilians and to the extent that our policies of separating migrant children from their parents, we know part of the logic behind this is to deter other people from coming. Mm-hmm. So you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to uh, attack civilians in this way with a goal of furthering a political policy. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that, to the best of my understanding, constitutes mass atrocity. I'm not an expert in this field, Mm -hmm. but I've read a little, and it does seem to be where some of the legal minds are at with this. Mm -hmm. In terms of everyday Americans and how we feel about this, I do get a little concerned about that argument being used as a distraction Mm -hmm. by people who are already antipathetic to the plight of the migrants. Mm -hmm. I think it's a way of baiting people into having an argument about something that doesn't, that shouldn't shape people's understanding of their own responsibilities in relation to this crisis Mm -hmm. for people who are not experts in human rights law and don't know what the technical definitions right. of all of this are they really don't need to be weighing in they need to be searching their consciousness mm-hmm. conscience and determining whether they believe that this is acceptable mm-hmm. and desirable
0: mm-hmm. yeah whether whether or not we had the the litmus test of the concentration camps we should still know right we shouldn't have had to go through that once to to know that what's happening is is wrong exactly right Right. Yeah. I
2: think I agree. I mean, I don't. I don't know enough. I can't. I can't say anything about policy or the legal definition of holocausts, anything like that. But I do think it's scary seeing the dehumanization and what seems to be the systematic oppression of a vulnerable group of people. Mm-hmm. And. I think we can I think we can learn from our history and I think we should be able to notice things and we can notice patterns of things. Um I'm not trying to <laughs> allude to anything, but I I think that as Americans we're intelligent. I mean, I know I've had I don't even know how many lessons in school about what led up to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it's important that we're just aware and we're noticing what's happening and we're using credible news sources and, you know, we're just staying on top of our information. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And Kate, the, this question is, is primarily for you as a young person. Um, our generations aren't that far apart, right? You're you're well into the Gen Z generation. I'm still a millennial. Um But we're, we're kind of, both of our generations are kind of facing down the barrel of the same few big guns, right? Um, climate change and, um, wealth inequality and debt and the migrant refugee crisis as a young person, how has this shaped your view of growing up in America of, uh, continued resistance against these things amongst your peers. I was just having a conversation the other day with somebody about, um, how uh, I feel like a lot of this stuff, I mean, when I was in high school, uh, things like Facebook and Twitter were just kind of getting to be the norm. And now younger people in high school are so well informed and are so, and I, and I feel like this, these things are really tied together, um, and and so, how how has this really influenced you, Kate? And um, not only your outlook of your future here in America, but also where you think you and your peers are going to continue to resist this type of stuff.
2: Yeah. So I think I'm um, I mean, one thing that that really sticks out to me about this immigration situation is that it is so clearly affecting people my age, and also. Way younger than me. I mean, I'm 15 and I can't even imagine how how terrible it would be to be separated from my parents. And when I try and think about how a four-year-old or a mm. seven-year-old feels, I mean, I just feel sick. I feel like I physically can't imagine how how that feels because i'm 15 and i can't imagine how it would feel Mm -hmm. um and now you know girls my age 15 they're being asked by ice officials to take care of little kids they've never met before Mm -hmm. um so i think i think as far as you mentioned social media so that that's one thing that sticks out to me about this and you mentioned social media i think that that yes, it's given my generation a lot more information, and it it helps us stay on top of these issues, but I think it also it opens the door for a lot of miscommunication, um, a lot of misinformation. I mean, I see on Instagram all the time I see I see things that I know are untrue, I see things that are offensive and i see people in my school my peers i see them repeating it and so i while i do think social media it opens the door for information and and helping my generation be aware i think that it also opens the door to the other side and mm-hmm. i think even more so now we have to be using Reliable news sources and credible sources. Um, and I i think as far as how my peers are going to be part of the resistance, I feel that, I feel in this whole situation, I feel very alone and I feel, in a sense, betrayed by our government. Mm. Because there are people in our government, I mean, their job is to protect humans Mm -hmm. that's that's their job Mm -hmm. and there are people in our government that don't seem to be taking that seriously and you know as a nation these are people we elected these are these are the people representing my nation Mm -hmm. and I feel betrayed that that they're not doing what I think is their job which is taking care of people Mm -hmm. um so I in that sense I find it Relieving to have a community of my peers and we're ready and we're excited and we're informed. Um, And I find it really inspiring that we're all on the same page. Um, But I also think that I know I just talked a lot about my generation, (laughs) but. I'm a very firm believer in that it's not my generation That's, you know, taking charge now. Mm -hmm. I think everyone's voice is so powerful. I mean, whether you're 112 or whether you're 7 or anywhere in between, your voice is so powerful. And there's a lot of talk, especially with climate change. You know, this is is my world now, my generation's world. Mm -hmm. Um, It's ours to take care of. And it's just, it's not true. This is our world. This is happening to our country. And and while I find it inspiring that my generation is ready and willing, I don't think any other generation is done. And I think we're all in this together. We have to be united. We're a society. We're a nation. And it has to turn into a movement not made up of just my peers, but made up of Americans.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And Sherry, being someone who comes from another generation, right, who didn't have social media, didn't have, um, you know, some of the, like, climate change not being as um, as much of an, an emergency situation as it is now, immigration and gun violence and gun reform, all these things, how do you, uh, especially someone who – remembers life before 9-11 and before the development of Homeland Security and ICE and all these things. Uh, how has this changed your view? Has your view stayed the same of, of life? And is this in line with what America has always been? Has it changed? How has it changed the way you look at um, your your daughter and your kids growing up in this this country? How, how are, has this affected those things?
1: So I was born in 1962. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a politically active household. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always say my first campaign was getting petition signed for a candidate named Allard Lowenstein mm-hmm. in New York with my mother. I was about four years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember going door to door with her. So I've been at this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this moment now of, uh, what is happening to migrants and asylum seekers. I think America, in terms of that particular question of who belongs and how do they belong, I think we have always been torn between one vision of the nation that is founded on the notion that we have a constitution, we have all opted in to being Americans, that we have... Uh, some of us have come here willingly from around the world, some of us have come here unwillingly from around the world, some mm-hmm. of us were on this land beforehand, yeah. and what unites us is a commitment to a rule of law that has not always fulfilled its promise by any stretch, mm-hmm. <laughs> but has always been there as, a you know, the forming a more perfect union. Mm-hmm. And, that has, and that is what unites us, the desire to form a more perfect union and to the people who come together uh, from a lot of different places with a lot of different perspectives and are joined by a commitment to the rule of law and a hope for a better future. And I think that vision of the nation has always been at odds with a more, with a notion that somehow a nation is founded on commonalities in race and religion and language.
0: Yeah. especially <clears throat> there's a, uh we tend to fracture these things, right? I mean, we tend to say, you know, America started with the constitution and really there was a life before that. And, um, and even then, right. I mean, there were, there was a whole race of, of slaves and native Americans that weren't really included in that. Right. And, um, and, and it is a, a time, I remember I I heard a great quote by, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, where she was basically talking about the constitution and, and these types of things that their identity basically evolves, um, as we inform it anew with a new, you know, so even if it wasn't written, um, in a certain light towards certain, um, the inclusion of certain races or people, we can now include them in that.
1: Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not talking about some romanticized view of, sure. of the constitution, but, as I said, the notion that we are always forming a more perfect union, right. we are always seeking to make things more just, more equitable, more inclusive. Mm-hmm. That's a vision I can get behind.
0: Yeah. And, and at this point, um, uh, in American history in American government and society, um, you know, what, what do you guys think can, what are, what are some steps we can take towards that more perfect union? Whether it's, Um, with in terms of immigration and asylum seekers or or in some other realm I mean what where what do you think needs to be done and addressed to really start us on that path after a season which at least for me has really felt like we've stalled out in trying to make this more perfect union we've just kind of accepted this for what it is and we've stopped pushing and working towards something new and better Um, yeah what, what what do you guys think that might be
1: so one thing that comes to mind is the problems we're having with voter disenfranchisement now
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, actively trying to suppress voters in certain areas, um, taking people off voting rolls, making it difficult for people to vote, gerrymandering mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. point where you know there aren't even competitive places to run for right. office, which not only means that only one view gets uh represented it also means that people aren't held accountable mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all you need is a D or an R next to your name right. and you know you're going to win regardless right. of how poor a job you have done or mm-hmm. will do so all kinds of things um, organized around really guaranteeing that every American has a voice mm-hmm. and that voices counted mm-hmm. go a long way
0: mm-hmm. and if I'm Right, I think the Supreme Court just came down with a five-four decision that basically said gerrymandering is legal. Well, that gerrymandering okay. is
1: not something the federal government can make a ruling about. Oh, okay. That states are the ones who need to make those determinations. Right, which
0: was a huge disappointment for for a lot of folks that were were behind uh, a federal ruling to outlaw gerrymandering. Right. What about you, Kate? What do you think these Next step should be for our country.
2: Um, one thing that really sticks out to me is is seeing how divided our country is becoming, and I mean through school. I know, I know. In my school, we have a Democrats of Lewisburg page. We have a Republicans of Lewisburg page, and I think it is important that people have communities and everyone has a voice. Um and I think I think it's good that people are being represented. But I think that we're getting to a place where people don't talk to each other anymore and when they do talk they don't listen. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't hear other sides. And especially now everything is just becoming so partisan. And this mm-hmm. issue immigration it's not partisan. I mm-hmm. mean there are people dying. There, it's, it's a humanitarian crisis. There are children being torn away from their families. I mean, people are literally dying. And the fact that it's becoming a partisan issue just really scares me. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that there are people in our government that, that are enhancing that, that are, that are trying to cause this divide and are trying to split our nation apart. And I feel like people just have to remember, we're Americans, we're humans. It doesn't, it doesn't just become Republican and Democrat. I mean, we're all citizens. We're all part of society. And going back to immigration again, this isn't... It's just not a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way about common sense gun legislation. I mean... There are people dying because of dangerous people with guns. And personally, I don't see how people dying is a partisan issue. You mentioned climate change. I mean, climate change, it's our world. I mean, <laughs> it's its the only one we have. And the fact that it's becoming a partisan issue, I just—I just I just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how people can be... Divided solely based on whether they have a D or an R next to their name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like one thing that I really hope my generation brings in is is a new sense of what it means to be American and what politics mean and, and how we can all become united again. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like we're really getting divided.
0: It really seems like... American politics lacks uh, a certain degree of empathy, right? I mean, we had, you had talked about, like, I don't even know, I can't even comprehend what it would be like to be separated from my parents at 15, and uh, I can't even imagine what it's like for a three- or four-year-old. And it seems like so many um, that are engaged politically can't put themselves in the place of that parent, or can't put themselves in the place of that child, or put themselves in the place of the coming generation that's going to have to deal with catastrophic climate change. Um, it seems like there'd be, there be are some real virtues in pulling some of these things out into the open and, and pointing that out, maybe, um, and being honest about it.
2: I was, I was, I'm just smiling. I just said that yesterday to my dad. We were talking about what we were going to say and how we were going to talk. Um, and I said that I think a really defining trait of being human and one one of the things in my opinion the one of the biggest things that separates us from other animals is the fact that we have empathy mm-hmm. and the fact that we can consider how others feel and try and put ourselves in their shoes I think that's that's one way we're really different than other animals mm-hmm. and it again it scares me that people seem to be losing their empathy
0: yeah. So <clears throat> with all of this in view, we just covered a lot of stuff, right? A lot of uh issues and a lot of material. Um, you know, for those of us that are here um that may not be able to get up and spend a few weeks at the border, um, for organizations like churches and uh synagogues and religious organizations, um, you know, in, in this realm in particular of immigration and asylum seekers and refugees. Um, you know, if, if you could tell us one or two things that you think that we as individuals and other religious organizations could be doing in, in aid to these people from where we are.
1: In terms of addressing the immediacy of, mm-hmm. of human suffering that mm-hmm, is going mm-hmm. on right now, uh, certainly, the center in McAllen, Texas, which is part of Capita Charities of the Rio Grande Valley, mm-hmm. they can always they can always use some money. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And money
1: is the easiest thing for them to deal with. Yeah. Like sending, you know, boxes of clothing is a lot of work; makes a lot of right. work for them. So, money is the simplest thing for them to deal with. Uh, so that's a kind of direct service you can do. Mm-hmm. There's also an immediate need for more immigration lawyers. Mm -hmm. Although it does seem that the administration is is establishing ways to prevent immigration lawyers from seeing clients. But that being said, there is, as far as I know, still at this moment, a need for more immigration lawyers. Uh, There are a lot of organizations out there, like RAICES, Mm R-A-I-C-E-S, that um, help with issues like that. The ACLU has been on the front lines of contesting many policies that have been determined to be not in keeping with our laws.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And they contest them, they prevail in court, the policy gets reconfigured, the ACLU comes back (laughs) and contests it again, so they can always use money. I think they've been doing tremendous work Mm -hmm. uh, in, Mm -hmm. in terms of advocacy at the border. In terms of the bigger picture, I think we really need to keep an eye on you know some of the things Katie was saying earlier about the uh, strategy of dehumanizing people, mm-hmm. and as you said, you know the the tremendous gap between the experience people who have met migrants have, and and how they understand them, and the way they are being represented, unfortunately, by our president. There is very little. There is no. There is no um, match between. The Way he depicts them, mm-hmm. um, at least you know, on television, radio, Twitter, yeah, and how people who have met them mm-hmm. uh, understand their plight, yeah. And that is something that is very dangerous, mm-hmm. it's very dangerous mm-hmm. when people are dehumanized that way, yeah. So, that is something we all need to do. One of the reasons I wanted to go to the border was not simply to help, but it was also to bring stories back to this area mm-hmm. to be able to share with people what we saw. And our firsthand experience, because telling stories is very powerful, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people can connect to it. So it's important for us to take every opportunity we have to remind others of the humanity of these people.
0: Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Kate?
2: Yeah, I mean everything Mom just said. I think, I think communication, as always, is is really important. I think. I think this is the third time I'm saying it, but credible news sources, I mean, just clear communication between press and and civilians, and just, I you mean, know, stuff like this, us having the capability to communicate what we saw to your podcast and to rallies and churches and synagogues and the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Communicating, I think communicating, it also, it just, it lessens the divide between what seems to be the two sides of our country that Mm -hmm. are forming. Mm -hmm. I I read an interesting
1: op-ed in the Times um, from a couple weeks ago, which was a professor who teaches about human rights, advocating something that I thought was perhaps a bit novel, maybe a bridge too far for some people but actually really going out and finding out who are the people on the ground
0: mm-hmm.
1: doing this work yeah, and not so much shaming them, but making people aware of it. Uh, you know, for me, I, I don't know about do we really want to identify the janitor in the detention facility, mm-hmm. but I do think there's something to be said for the attorney who got up in court and said, no, children don't need to have soap and toothbrushes and toothpaste. Never mind that prisoners of war have to have them, right? Four-year-olds without their parents don't need them. Who is that person? Mm -hmm. What about the American Bar Association? Mm -hmm. Do they Mm -hmm. really want to consider her still to be a member in good standing? Attorneys have codes of ethics just as physicians do. Mm -hmm. I think organizations like that, The ABA, the American Bar Association, could really take a look at some of the lawyers who are defending these these inhumane policies Mm -hmm. and consider, I don't know if they have the capacity to revoke their license, I have no idea, Censuring them in some way, doing something. I Mm -hmm. think that would be pretty effective. As I said earlier, we know from World War II, just following orders is not going to be an excuse. Mm -hmm. And we see children dying. We see people being um, treated in ways that are completely counter to our federal law and international law. And they're going to be held accountable at some point. Mm-hmm. I think they ought to realize that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this last point, uh, Sherry, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I have a good friend who uh, I graduated seminary with who is a pastor in Texas now. Um, and I had said something along the lines of this on social media uh about how the kind of economic security that a job may offer you isn't a good excuse for partaking in the roles that ice and c b b and all these people are are doing and and that is a real struggle right now because I have to imagine that the people that are there may be some people in those positions that may want to get up and go and feel like they don't have any options and feel like they can't, uh, go anywhere else. Um, but, uh, at the same time, it's not really a valid excuse. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. And in particular, these, these lawyers that are continuing to defend this because it's their, their job. Um, I I think there may be some real, uh, Real possibilities in terms of activism toward that, uh, which does require a little more legwork, um, but uh, but it is another another uh, way to get involved in petitioning those organizations.
1: Yeah, I mean the CPB, you know, Customs and Border, CBP Border um, Protection, is the largest law enforcement organization in our country. There's some twenty thousand employees. I know from what I've read Um, that some of them are traumatized by what they are seeing in these facilities. Mm -hmm. And they have repeatedly made requests for blankets, for soap, for toothpaste. They are sickened by seeing children in this way. They are themselves, as I said, traumatized by this experience. And they are, from my perspective, fighting the good fight. They Mm -hmm. are in there. They are advocating. They are trying to make some change. Unfortunately, there are also some who are enabling all of this. Yeah. So I think it's a very complex picture when you're looking at people on the ground. But again, you know, there are international standards about what you can participate in as an individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do think it's an easier first step, at least, to think about censuring people who are higher up on the food chain. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I want to thank you guys so much for coming and talking. Um, this has been really uh, really eye-opening and thank you for bringing these stories, um, bringing these stories here and sharing them with us and sharing them with our our uh, rally tonight. Um, and uh, and I, I look forward to speaking to you all again. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having thank us.
0: You. All right, guys, uh, it's so good to be with you again as always. Uh, Be sure to be looking out for, for new episodes of the Not Your Typical Church podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And in the meantime, just make sure you're going out and loving people. See you guys later.